If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of James, please. That's going to be on page 1011 in the black pew Bibles in front of you. The book of James. Read with me, starting in James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." Today we're starting a new sermon series through the book of James. But why James? It's a good question. Of all the books in the Bible, why have we chosen James now? This is especially important this time of year when we're about to celebrate the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the Catholic Church in Wittenberg. That's an act that sparked um, the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. We're going to celebrate that on Saturday morning uh, together. Martin Luther, who we greatly love and respect, he wrote this in the preface of his German translation of the New Testament. He wrote this about the book of James. St. James's epistle is really a right strawy epistle compared to the others. He meant Romans and Galatians and Ephesians. For it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. So Martin Luther called the, the letter of James to be a strawy epistle, strawy, so made of straw, right? A, an epistle of straw. It doesn't have any real content to it. It's almost false in a lot of ways. Now, Luther was correct in saying that the book of James does not lay out any extended explanation of the nature of Jesus and His work on the cross especially compared to what we find in Romans and Galatians and Ephesians. Instead, James calls Christians to action, to living out the gospel we profess in normal daily life. James assumes the gospel. In fact, he assumes a lot of big truths. He starts further down the road than the Apostle Paul does many times, and this really is okay. Different authors of Scripture had different motivations and purposes for writing. They had different audiences and different issues to address. Given the broad range of theological topics and false teachings and questions and church issues to address at that time, we should not expect every author to follow the same line of thinking or that they would simply just rehash what other authors had written. We should expect a variation a range of topics and purposes in their writings. But let's be clear, I don't think we can agree with Luther's, with Luther's assessment anyway. It's not as though James has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. There are seeds of the gospel message in James. So just real quick, we're going to look at a couple quick passages. This is all by way of introduction, just so we can kind of wrap our minds around the book of James. Just look real quick in James 1.18. We read this, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. 
What does it mean to be brought forth by the word of truth? This word brought forth means to beget or to generate or to produce. Another way to say this is to be born again. So right here we have the idea of the Christian new birth. Now the same idea is picked up again in chapter 1 verse 21 if you want to read there. It says, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So here, this word, which seems to be the gospel message of Christ, is what is implanted in us and brings about our salvation. It sounds awful like what, an awful lot like what we read in other epistles of the Apostle Paul even. And third, if we keep the same definition of word through the following verses of 22 through 25, it would seem that James is encouraging Christians to be doers of the gospel, not doers of the law, as is sometimes understood. In fact, in verse 25, James mentions the perfect law, the law of liberty. I would argue that what he has in mind there is not the Old Testament law, but the perfect law, which is this word of truth that he's just been talking about, the word of truth being the good news of Jesus Christ. And let's not forget in our passage today, in verse 1 of chapter 1, we see that James calls himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James saw himself not only as a servant of God, but as a servant of his Lord, his master, Jesus Christ. James, who was a Jew, would not make such a statement unless he had a high view of who Jesus was and what he did. Now, we're going to spend more time in those passages in the weeks to come, but I wanted to make it clear that, first of all, James does not contradict anything we see in other places of Scripture, and that includes his controversial explanation of faith and works in chapter 2. It's a hard passage to understand. It's hard to square what James says in chapter 2 with what we read in other epistles, Um, but not if if we look at James and we understand it as a whole, we understand it in its context. It's not as though the gospel is totally absent from this book. So, though we greatly respect Martin Luther, we are abundantly thankful for his life and his ministry, the impact he had on the church and all of that. We cannot agree with him about James being an epistle of straw. So, again, we ask the question, why have we chosen James? James, we find, in James, we find the gospel in everyday living. That's why we've titled the series The Everyday Gospel. It addresses many themes of everyday living, such as trials and suffering, our speech, anger, prayer, living with wisdom, the relationship between faith and works, caring for the poor, humility, and other topics. James is sometimes referred to as the Proverbs of the New Testament. Just like the Old Testament book of Proverbs addresses wise living and tells us how, to li- how life works best, so does James. So the primary reason we chose James is because we thought it would be a good follow-up to the book of Titus. In Titus, we were encouraged repeatedly to live lives that match our doctrine, to live consistently with the gospel. And here in James, we see more specifically how to do that as it pertains to specific habits and patterns of life. But who was James? Here in verse 1, all we have is the name James. It's 
a very common name, even in our own day, but probably even more common 2,000 years ago. There are no other identifiers as to who this James was. Now, there are three famous men in the New Testament named James. The most famous James is James the disciple. He's John's brother, right? That's John the beloved disciple. That, not John the Baptist, but John um, the beloved disciple, one of the 12 disciples. James was his brother. Together, with their apostolic powers combined, James and John are known as the sons of Zebedee or the sons of thunder, which is a pretty awesome title. It just makes me think of like a super apostle, you know, their powers combined. Uh, Zebedee was their dad's name. So they're sons of Zebedee. Now, if you had to name as many of the 12 disciples as you could, most of us would probably name Peter, Andrew, James, and John, right? Two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and John. But was James the son of Zebedee the author of this letter? It would seem not. He could have been, but probably not. We're told in Acts 12 that James the son of Zebedee was killed by Herod sometime around 44 AD. That means he would have had to have written this letter before then, which most scholars think is just too early. But what you may not remember is that there was another apostle named James. If we were to turn to Mark 3, we would read this list of the apostles. Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot. So there was a second apostle named James, the son of Alphaeus. The problem is, we don't know anything about this James. He's not really mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament that we're aware of. Could he be the author of this book? Yeah, it's possible. But early church history sources attribute this book to the third famous James, which is James, the half-brother of Jesus. So the third James, the half-brother of Jesus. Despite what Roman Catholics teach, Mary, the mother of Jesus, went on to have other children after Jesus. In Mark 6, we read this. Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. So he's in his hometown. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him, and Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives, and in his own household. Now, how would that passage make any sense if these were not Jesus' actual brothers and sisters? We, we could say half-brothers and sisters. So let's be clear. Jesus had a half-brother named James. And according to church tradition, he is the author of this book. And we get this from sources such as Eusebius and other early church history writers who mention James, a half-brother, of Jesus being the author of this book. So, though we cannot say with absolute certainty, all of that information seems to indicate that the author of this letter is James, the half-brother of Jesus. This is the same James that's mentioned in Acts uh, several other times. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He's heavily involved in the, the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. And again, according to church tradition, that's the same James who is the author of this book, the half-brother of Jesus. 
But what's the purpose of this letter? We go on to read here in verse 1, this letter is addressed to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, more than likely, this means the letter was intended for Jewish Christians. The letter was likely written to several different churches outside of Jerusalem to address common questions and issues that had come up. And the first issue that James addresses is where we turn our attention to now. Let's read again verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So my main point today, through the rest of this passage, is this. We can be joyful in trials when we remember that God is at work. We can be joyful in trials when we remember that God is at work. The first thing we see in verses 2 through 4 is that trials produce a test of faith. Trials produce a test of faith. Now, how many times do we consider this truth? If you're anything like me, the way we view trials is that they are somehow outside of God's sovereign plan. It's as though we think that God's plan is that His children would only experience good things, agreeable circumstances, and earthly comforts. So when the trials come, we automatically adopt, I know I do, this mentality that says, well, here's a trial. I must do everything I can to get out of the trial. Surely this is not what God would want me to be experiencing right now. Or maybe some of us have adopted an even more dangerous understanding of trials, something similar to the prosperity gospel. Maybe you think that trials come about because of a lack of faith or sin on your part. Maybe when you experience trials, your default response is to claim some promise of God in order to convince yourself that God's real plan for you is pleasure or comfort or worldly treasure and not your current circumstance. If you watch or listen to a lot of prosperity preachers, you will hear a lot of this kind of language. You'll either be told explicitly or implicitly that God's desire for you is that you never experience suffering or hardship. And if you are, then there's probably something you've done or something about you that needs to change. Maybe there's some promise you need to claim or some habit you need to develop or stop or some amount of money you need to give to their TV ministry in order to find relief from the trial. At the root of this thinking is that whatever trial you are facing, God certainly does not want that trial for you. But church, we must not buy into this false teaching. We need a bigger more robust theology of trial than that. Scripture never tells us that God's children will not face trials. In fact, over and over, we are told the exact opposite. First, just look at the life of our Lord. Did Jesus not suffer? Was His earthly ministry not full of intense temptation and persecution and physical and mental anguish and eventually a tortuous death? then why would we think that we would not also experience such things? And second, what did Jesus actually teach about trials? Well, in Matthew 5, He says, Blessed are you 
when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me, on account of me. rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. In John 15, he says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In John 16, Jesus says, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. But besides that, the rest of Scripture is filled with the expectation of trials. Just one passage, 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. So let's be Christians who are resolved in this truth. God's sovereign plan for us will certainly include trials and suffering and hardship. If we continue to think or even say things like, God doesn't mean for me to experience this trial. He's only allowing it to happen then quite frankly, most of what happens in the world will not make any sense to us. God does not passively sit back and just allow things to happen. It's not as though God is just watching things unfold that are outside of His plan and His good purpose, saying, man, I really wish there was something I could do about this, but I'm just going to let things unfold. I'm going to allow this to happen. We talk like this sometimes, this language of allowance that God allows things to happen, bad things. Church, think about the widespread suffering and disease and destruction that takes place on a daily basis all around the world. To say that God simply allows it to happen, that does not adequately explain any purpose behind it. That makes it sound like either God is not powerful enough to stop it or He's oblivious to the hurt and suffering that's taking place. No, God has a purpose for every trial and every hardship. They are not meaningless. He has planned and purposed them for many, many reasons. In the passage I just read from 1 Peter 4, that we see that when we suffer, we share in the sufferings of Christ. In 1 Peter 1, we see our trials are not about us anyway. They are ultimately meant to bring glory to God. In Matthew, when we suffer, we actually earn reward in heaven. And here in James, we see that trials are meant to test our faith. God is at work in the midst of your trial. It is no accident It is not something he's just allowing to happen, but really wishing wasn't happening. No, he is in control. He has planned it. He has known it before the foundation of the world. He is not caught off guard by your trial. He is at work in a hundred different ways that we may never see or know. So that's the first point. Trials are meant to test our faith. He means for them to happen. But why? What's the purpose? 
Is the test just to expose our weakness? No. The test is meant, we're told here, to produce steadfastness. Testing produces steadfastness. But what is steadfastness? This word steadfastness can also mean hopeful endurance or constancy or enduring patience. Another word would be perseverance. But how? How does testing produce steadfastness? Well, James doesn't really explain it. He just tells us that it happens. It produces steadfastness. But it doesn't take much thought, really. When we meditate on this, when we think about this this subject in our own lives, it doesn't take much thinking to understand how this happens in the life of the Christian. It happens in many different ways. This week, I was referred to a book on the life of John Newton. Now, John Newton, he wrote about this very subject, what trials produce in the life of the Christian. Now, John Newton was a pastor in England in the 1700s. He worked on a slave trading ship for years before he was converted. He's most famously known for writing the the famous hymn, uh, Amazing Grace and others. In one of his many letters, Newton does a great job explaining the effects of trials in the life of the Christian. So, I'm going to let Newton be our guide here. I'm going to just kind of go through some of the things that he, he, he says more than this. He was very Puritanesque in his writing, so he just went on and on and on and covered every possible topic. Um, but I'm just going to kind of summarize some of, the, some of the things that he says. Now, remember, we're asking the question, how does the testing of our faith in trials produce steadfastness? How does this happen? If you're a note taker, these would be great points to write down. I found them very helpful. First, the testing exposes our idolatry. Or as Newton says, trials smoke out our idols. So just like taking a test in school exposes areas of weakness, so the trials of life expose where our heart's treasure really lies. Do you prize your comfort or security above Christ? then God may challenge those comforts and securities. Do you prize material possessions above Christ? Then God may decide to strip you of many of your worldly possessions. Do you hold your children or spouse above the things of God? Then God may test your faith in those areas so that they find their proper order in your heart. It's when we are tested, when the heat is turned up, that our true selves are exposed. Trials smoke out our idols. Second, according to Newton, trials drive us to prayer. Nothing will drive a truly reformed heart to prayer faster than a trial. Apart from trials, we begin to assume we are self-sufficient. You know, maybe I don't really need God as much as I once thought I did. But in the midst of a struggle, in the midst of suffering, the heart of the Christian is reminded of his great need and His dependence upon Christ. We are quick to call upon Him for help and comfort. We cannot bear the weight of the trial. We long to cast our burdens upon Christ and draw near to Him and commune with Him as a brother and trust in God as our Father. Trials drive us to prayer. Third, trials call back wandering hearts. See, when trials come, worldly things that once seemed so important find their proper place. If you've ever walked with someone as they are about to die, 
If you've ever spent time with people who are on their deathbed, you see this. When eternal issues such as life and death and sin and judgment become primary, temporal things like earthly comforts and worldly possessions and trivial quarrels, they lose their significance. We realize how much time and energy we've wasted on lesser things. We realize our hearts have been dry for so long, and we are drawn back to Christ, who is the fountain of all living water. Trials call back wandering hearts. Fourth, I love this imagery, trials are ice water on sleepy souls. Trials are ice water on sleepy souls. Have the things of God become dull to you? Do biblical truths seem to have lost their edge or their power? That is not because of any deficiency in God's Word. It's because your soul has become sleepy. We fail to experience the power and strength that God provides because we don't have a context in which to experience it. But trials change all that. They are ice water on the face of our sleepy souls. They wake us up to the life and vigor that God offers. They move us out of our bed and into the blazing heat or the bleak cold winter so that we might become fruitful once again. Sleepy souls quickly become lifeless souls, and our Father knows this. He will not let His children return to death He will wake them up and open their eyes once again, and oftentimes He does this through a trial. Trials are ice water on sleepy souls. And fifth, this is the last one, trials create opportunities to experience the comfort and grace of God. Through trials, we have the opportunity to see God's active pursuit of us. I got this from Kyle, by the way. Those are his almost exact words, citing my source. As we dig deeper into our reservoir of faith, we also experience the comfort and care of our perfect Father. We come to know aspects of God's goodness and grace that we would otherwise never know. So, how do trials produce steadfastness? A good way to think about it, if you need an analogy, is like plant growth. I got this from Kyle, who I think stole it from somebody else. We all know plants need water to survive, right? Plants can get water from two sources. One source is rain from the sky. This is what we often think about when we think about plants growing. They need rain. As rain falls onto the plant or the soil around the plant, the nutrients are absorbed, and the result is growth. But what happens when the rain dries up or there's a drought? We could even say when the heat comes, what happens? This is when the plant's roots must dig down deeper into the soil to find a water source even further down below the surface. And this is what happens when we, when we meet trials of various kinds. The trial causes us to dig down deeper, not into ourselves, but into the rich soil of God's Word and His promises. We dig harder to find communion with God and to be strengthened and comforted in His presence. 
There's so many good quotes from Puritans on this topic. I'll just read one from Thomas Watson. He's a Puritan pastor. He wrote a book called All Things for Good. It's on this very topic. He writes this, when God lays men upon their backs, then they look up to heaven. God's spiting His people is like the musician striking upon the violin, which makes it put forth melodious sound. How much good comes to the saints in affliction. When they are pounded, they send forth their sweetest smell. Affliction is a bitter root, but it bears sweet fruit. Church, I hope you see that all of this, all of this, This is God's grace to us. See, God is more concerned that our hearts would treasure Him above all things than He is with our earthly comfort, and we should thank Him for that. All of this comes about because God loves us perfectly. He wants what is best for us. He knows how to produce in us exactly what our souls long for, a deep, abiding steadfastness. And third, steadfastness produces maturity. Some of you might be saying, okay, I agree with you, Caleb. Trials produce steadfastness. I've had that experience. They produce a deeper, more grounded faith. But, I mean, come on. I've got faith. Isn't that good enough? I mean, I'm a child of God. I have faith in Jesus. I'm going to heaven when I die. Why does my faith need to be tested? Can't I just have faith? This is where my third point comes in. Trials are not meant to only produce steadfastness. Steadfastness is meant to lead to full Christian maturity. Let's read verse 4 again. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. These words, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, nothing, they signify full Christian maturity, This is what God is working in us. It's not just steadfastness. It is the completed whole work of God. Just like the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians 1, we proclaim Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. In Philippians 1, Paul says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 3, we're told, as we behold the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. God's design for our character is that we would be lacking in nothing. This means that when we first come to Christ and when we we begin to walk with the Lord, we are lacking in many things. Our faith is weak and fickle. Oftentimes, we are zealous in, uh, to, for the Lord in unhelpful, unbalanced ways. But when we face trials and our faith is tested more in Christ and in His Word, we increase in steadfastness. We begin to live more and more in our new identity in Him until the grip of our old nature is lessened. As that happens, It becomes more natural for us to depend on Christ, to commune with Him, to experience supernatural comfort and strength that only He can provide. 
See, church, we must get this right. Christian maturity does not mean that we become more self-sufficient. No. Christian maturity is different from almost any other kind of maturity. Oftentimes when we talk about maturity, what we mean is that we are able to care for ourselves more. And that's true for a lot of things. As children grow, they become less dependent upon their parents. They start to dress themselves and feed themselves and clean themselves and speak for themselves until eventually they leave the home for good. And that's a good thing. That is maturity. That needs to happen. But I'm so glad that's not the Christian life. It is just the opposite. To be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, does not mean that we become more self-sufficient. It means that we recognize more and more how much we need Christ. Our love for Him increases. Our affection for His church increases. We sacrifice more for the good of others and the needs of those around us. Ourselves become less. Our dependence upon Him becomes more. Christian maturity in the midst of a trial does not say, just put your head down and power through. No, Christian maturity is the ability to recognize our helplessness, to hope in God, to cast our cares upon God because of, that, because of what He has done for us in Christ in the midst of our trials. Those who are most mature are those who regularly admit their weaknesses and shortcomings and failures. Their lives are marked by humility and teachability. They do not push for their own agendas, but are content to live in every circumstance for the glory of the Lord because their roots have grown deep enough to find the life-giving water source. I want this so bad for me. (laughs) I mean, just think about this. Any situation. Think about the, the most difficult trial, the most difficult news you could receive. You still maintain joy. It's a secret of life, right? There's nothing, there's nothing more important than maintaining joy in the midst of hardship and trial. What a reservoir, what what a fountain of living water we have available to us that no matter what, we can be content in Christ. My heart is so fickle. I'm just tossed so often from circumstance to circumstance, from desire to desire. It affects my mood. It affects my, the way I speak to people. I want this so bad for me. I want this so bad for our church. And what's the result of such life-giving water? This is my last point. The result is joy. It's right there at the beginning of verse 2. We haven't even talked about it yet. Count it all joy. Because of everything that we've seen so far, James tells us that we can count all of our trials as joy. Now, to count something as joy does not mean that the actual experience of the trial is the same thing as joy, okay? Trials 
by their very definition, are unpleasant and painful. So I'm not saying we have to pretend like we're not in pain or try to minimize the extent of the pain or the grief or whatever the trial might be. To count our trials as joy does not mean we have to construct a false reality where we take joy in pain or pretend like nothing is wrong when things all around us are falling apart. No. Instead, we can fully acknowledge the trial and all of the pain and all of the suffering we are experiencing. We don't have to be afraid of bad news or hard circumstances. We can look them in the face and know that they, have, they do not have to master us because we have a new master, one who is with us and at work in us in the midst of the trial. But how do we do this? How does this happen? How how are we able to count these things joy? Well, first, it's not possible outside of a Christian worldview. If you're here, you are not a follower of Christ. This joy that James is talking about, it's not possible for you. Those who have not tasted the goodness of God in Christ have no connection to the fountain of living water. If you're here and you realize that you are a non-Christian, then please know that, first of all, you are welcome here. We want you here. We're glad you're here. But nothing in this message will actually find its way into your life unless your heart has been changed by God. You will not be able to see your trial as part of God's plan. Your roots will not have soil to sink in when the trial comes. And over time, you will not be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. Your life will be full of bitterness, anger at God, and eventually spiritual death. But please know today that God loves sinners. In fact, His love for His people is so great that He sent Christ to this earth to pay the penalty for their sin. And anyone who repents of their sins and humbly trusts in Him will then be called brothers and sisters in Christ. And then those roots will have something to find when the trials come. The joyful treasures of Christ are everlasting for Christians. So please, come to Christ today. Repent. Stop now and pray. Ask Christ to help you trust in Him to find joy in the midst of any trial. For those of us who are Christians, we need to ask ourselves this question. What do we really want? Do we want comfort or do we want lasting joy? Do you really want eternal lasting joy or would you rather just skate into heaven with minimal effort and a small view of God? Many times when I'm honest with myself, I want the second option. I am really quite satisfied, oftentimes, with my small view of God and my easy life. Therefore, what I really want from God is to just be left alone. But thankfully, God loves us too much to let us stay there. He knows what our hearts need. He loves His children too much to allow them to stay infants. He will complete what He has started in us, and He will do it through trials. 
And we really do need each other on this journey. We are so prone to forget that God is at work in the midst of trial. This is where we can truly be brothers and sisters in Christ. It's our great privilege and opportunity to remind one another of these truths as we walk with each other through trials. This is something that I see all the time at Redeemer. It's such a joy and a blessing to see brothers and sisters serving and loving and caring for one another in the midst of trial. We've seen this repeatedly in our church. It's a joy. We are able to encourage one another and remind one another in helpful ways that God is at work in the midst of this. You may not see it now. It may not seem that way. But if we don't believe that, then there's no end. There's no end in sight. There's just bitterness and anger and frustration. As we remind one another of God's goodness and the fact that He is at work, we can walk with each other through trials. So church, it really is possible. This really is possible. There are times when I question this for myself. I do. I question. This might be true for other people, but can I really count this as joy? I don't see it. I don't feel it. But I have to believe it is possible to experience true God-saturated joy in the midst of any trial. It really is. These words of James are not the idealistic ramblings of an immature Christian who's never experienced real pain. No, these are the words of none other than the brother of our Lord. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem for decades after Christ's resurrection. He was no stranger to controversy or suffering or persecution. He was writing to churches full of people who had experienced the same things. And these promises are for us today. Maybe some of you right now are going through an intense trial. Please turn to Christ for comfort and strength. Remember that nothing that is happening to you is outside of God's perfect plan for your life. Remember that He is doing a multitude of things in your heart that you are not even aware of. Remember that this trial is a test of your faith The test is meant to produce steadfast assurance of His his promises, and remember that the end result is that you would be perfect and complete, lacking in no good spiritual quality. I want to end with just an illustration, a real-life example of joy in the midst of trial. Some of you might know the name Johnny Erickson Tata. In 1967, Johnny Erickson Tata jumped into the Chesapeake Bay. She misjudged the depth of the water, and she emerged forever changed. She would from that point forward be a quadriplegic, living her entire life in a wheelchair. She had no use of her arms or legs. Tata has written extensively of her experiences. She's been an inspiration to many. She's a picture of our text in James 1, 1 through 4. She models joy in the midst of suffering. On one occasion, Johnny discussed having her wheelchair in heaven. She said this, I hope I can take my wheelchair to heaven with me. I know that's not biblically correct, but if I were able, I would have my wheelchair up in heaven right next to me when God gives me my brand new 
glorified body. I will then turn to Jesus and say, Lord, you see that wheelchair right there? Well, you were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble because that wheelchair was a lot of trouble. But Jesus, the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. You see that? You. So thank you for what you did in my life through that wheelchair. And now, I always say jokingly, you can send that wheelchair to hell if you want to. Church, I pray that we would be people who count our, jo- our trials as joy. Because we can be joyful in trials when we remember that God is at work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we don't deserve any good thing from you. We deserve hell. We deserve eternal separation. We deserve nothing but hardship and trial. But Father, you you have promised us, you have given us the ability to maintain joy in the midst of anything, whether we have plenty, whether we have very little, no matter what situation we find ourselves in, we can learn to be content in Christ. Lord, I want that to be true for our church so badly. So Lord, do that work in us. It's not going to happen after one sermon. It's a lifetime, Lord, of reminding ourselves and reminding one another of these truths. And Lord, help us to be a church that does this well. May we be a church, Lord, that is so grounded and rooted in the truths of your word that come what may, we will rejoice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.